Christianity continues to take a beating. If you are a Christian, you call yourself a believer, you too are taking a beating. Uh, It was once fashionable to be tolerant of all religions, but fashions change. Things go in and out of fashion. To say, I believe in the Bible, or to say that I believe in Jesus Christ, uh, may seem to be a fairly innocuous statement, but that statement has become uh, debated, vitriolic, uh, hateful, and all kinds of other adjectives. For the ancients, when they said, I believe in the Word of God, what they meant by that was, I believe the law and I obey it. For a modern to say, I am a Christian, I believe in Jesus Christ, should therefore mean, I obey Jesus Christ. It would not be unlike to say, uh, I believe in a vaccine, you would expect them to get one. I don't believe in a vaccine, and you get one. Those are inconsistent, they're incongruous. If you say you believe something, the theory, the idea, the obvious notion is that you would do what you say you believe. Western Christianity, I use that term to describe churches in the West, being the U.S., to some degree the U.K., English-speaking countries. The Western church has uh, reduced these terms. You can believe whatever you want, and you can behave however you want. There's no congruity if I say I believe this, that I will obey or submit or follow this thing. That's long gone from the Christian nomenclature, and we see it in lots of different ways. To believe in God, to believe in His Word, to believe in the person and work of Jesus, the alignment needs to be, I'm following Him. I'm believing Him. I'm obeying Him. I'm doing what He is telling me to do. Social media has created a knee-jerk response to anything. We can instantly put out a message, a picture, a meme, uh, some clever reposting of someone else's technology, and in a moment of time, we'll have a following or a filleting. Certain people have lost their reputation and their career by a tweet. Other people who are infamous and maybe should have remained such have become famous because of posts on social media. It is a very different time. Um, If you have placed your trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, you need courage, you need clarity, and you need confidence on how to talk about that in a world that is much less uh, welcoming, much less tolerant of anything that you might hold or believe. The resurrection is the critical event in biblical Christianity. The resurrection, or what we might call Easter Sunday, is not just important, for without it, Christianity is a fraud. Without the resurrection, this book is a lie. It is not even worth literary analysis. This isn't even the same level as a myth. It's a lie. It's deceptive, unless it is true about the person at work. The entire corpus of the Scripture hinges on one thing, the resurrection of Christ. It's that simple and that hard. This is what we need to think about today on Easter Sunday. I prefer to call it resurrection celebration. It doesn't quite have the lilt of Easter Sunday. Marketing can improve it. 
Bruce Shelley wrote, Christianity is the only religion to have as its critical event the humiliation of its God. Whether it's Buddha, Allah, uh, Tao, Confucius, any other man-made religion, after one follower, uh, they didn't kill the hero. They didn't kill the king. They didn't murder the founder to destroy the religion. And Shelley aptly says it's the only religion to have as its crucial event, the humiliation of its God. So we killed the God-man who died in our place on our behalf instead of us. I want to look at three things out of Colossians chapter 2. Not the typical Easter story, not the Easter account, not the Passion Week, not the weekend that changed the world. Um, those are obviously wonderful texts. We looked at them every year at most churches. I want you to think a little bit outside it, but you'll see that the Apostle Paul is saying much of the same thing in this section of Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. Let me first of all give you a part of a three-point outline. Christ is superior to all ideology. Christ is superior, or if you're from the north, to all ideology. Verse 8 of Colossians 2, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Paul is warning the Colossian believers, it's empty and it's hollow if it's from the world. It has no meaning. There's no resonance in it. Don't be deceived by philosophy or by empty deception according to the traditions of men. Some of the English Bibles, instead of see to it, use the word beware, which is a good word, cautionary, beware. It's like the apocryphal sign above the University Center laser lab that says, beware, do not look at laser with remaining eye. Pay attention to these things. See to it. Don't be led captive. Because you're going to miss something big here. You're going to lose your sight, metaphorically. Um, one translator renders it kidnapped. Don't be kidnapped by philosophy and empty deception. Of course, the word philosophy comes from the Greek word philosophy. It's a loan word. We bring it in from another language to English, which we do a lot. The love of wisdom. That's not saying all philosophy is bad or philosophizing is bad. It's saying don't be deceived. Don't be taken captive that philosophy has the answer to some of the bigger questions of life. So man's wisdom is set in contrast with the wisdom of God. Empty deception, what a, what a vivid, simple description. It's, it's meaningless. It's hollow. There's nothing there. Think about it. This is antiquity. This is still the first century. Or fast forward to the year 2021, and there are still things that have no meaning. How often is something put on social media that has no background, no factual basis, no research, no nothing? It's just something they put up to kick up some dust, and we are persuaded by it. First of all, Paul is saying Christ is superior to all ideology, to all ideology. He is, he is ahead of it. And for the believer in Jesus Christ in the West, you and I have been pushed and suppressed and uh, live in a bit of fear and discouragement that we can't say something like, I think Christ reigns supreme. I think Christ is superior over all worldly knowledge. Watch Paul's argument. Secondly, 
he is the fullness of God. Not only is he superior over all human wisdom, he's the fullness of God. Now, this is a bit of a head-scratcher, but let's look at it. Verse 9, in him, the fullness, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In about ten words, we have one of the most uh, mind-blowing definitions of the God-man. In him, Christ, all the fullness of deity, let's just say the Godhead, dwells in bodily form. Now, during that, the time this is written, there were people in Colossae, and sort of the topic de jour, people thought he was an angel. Other people thought Jesus was just a man who was brilliant. We might say a Gandhi or someone that we'd look up to. And so there was a tension, which, by the way, nothing's new. Nothing new under the sun. It hadn't come along recently like, oh, Jesus really wasn't God. He was just a good teacher. These are old arguments. Um, and many have challenged and continue to challenge about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 9 is trying to be this string of emphatic positions. Paul's going to build a case with five phrases I'm going to show you in a moment. But in him and with him, all this hinges, he's God. He's fully God and fully man, and you will never, I will never comprehend that. It's what the text teaches us. It's what the Bible underscores again and again and again. He has eternally existed. He was born uh, of a virgin named Mary. How did he eternally exist and then become uh, an infant in a womb and be born and live 33 years and be crucified? I'll never be able to explain that better than the Bible. It's a matter of faith. He is the eternally existent Son of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Godhead three, each individual person, one Trinitarian Godhead. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, he says in him all the fullness of deity dwells. Don't think of this as this human body was sort of a repository for God to pour himself into. That has names in theological history I won't bore you with. But the idea that he was poured in, God was somehow poured into him. Fullness here means that he is God. You can't make Jesus more like God. It happens from time to time, maybe not in your experience, but it has in mind when people say, well, well I mean, how, how can Jesus Christ be God? I would like to see God. I mean, I want to see the real God. And we walk through Scripture, and we know the account of Moses. He wants to see him, and essentially God says, you can't see me and live. I believe what that means is you'd be overwhelmed with the holy righteousness of God, and you'd be destroyed. You can't see me and live. But I'll show you my backside. As I pass by, you can glimpse on my glory from behind, so to speak. And so when people say, well, I, I just wish God would you know, reveal himself or... Just look to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We've talked about this many times at Stonebridge. If you want to know who God is or what God thinks or what God is like, look at the person and work of Jesus Christ. Read the gospel accounts of what he did, when he did it, where he was, and you'll see this is what God not would do, but what he did in fact do. The fullness dwells. It's a present tense active. It's forever. I, I don't know about you, but if I was to ask you, before Jesus was born of a virgin, what was he like when he eternally existed? Was he some kind of spiritual form? Was he like the, the super-duper uh, angel of all creation? And the Holy Spirit, we don't try to draw him because we know he's a spirit, 
We have a picture of God the Father with a long white beard up in outer space, right? Uh, or Santa Claus. What's Jesus look like? And I'm embarrassed to say it was not maybe 10 years ago. It dawned on me. He was corporeal in eternity past just as he is today post-resurrection. He was the always eternally existing. He did not change in form or manner after the crucifixion. He does change in his ability to ascend to heaven, walk through walls. He still eats. That's a good sign for us in heaven. He still eats. I like to eat. So we have this picture of him, but I think a biblical framework is he was the always existing Jesus. And right now at the Father's right hand, and I think that is both uh, meant to be not, not simply liter, literary, liter, literal, which it could be, but I think it's more position of power and primacy. He's at the Father's right hand, and in eternity uh, in heaven, I don't understand all I know, but he is still a corporeal human, fully God, fully man. We'll never understand that. Well, all the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. Christ isn't filled up somehow and then he loses it. And what's Paul saying here with the bigger argument? He's talked about empty deception or hollow philosophies. Unlike that, he's the fullness of God. That's what they would have heard. He's not empty and deceptive like a worldly philosophy. He is the fullness of God. He's the very God. Um, Sometimes we have friends, and maybe you've had, maybe you're this way. You have to go out into the wilderness. You have to go on a lake. I have people that like to sail, and they like to go way out in the ocean, and they like to be out there all by themselves with their big sailboat. And uh, motors are like heresy. A real sailboat, and they're out in the middle of nowhere, and the night sky, and that's where they meet God. And they love that out in the wilderness, out in the mountains, out on the ocean, out in the desert experience. And that's where they meet God. Well, listen, I love being out in the middle of nowhere when I was a backpacker, climber, winter backpacker, ice climber, crazy person. I did those things. And there was a sense I felt closer to God. Anybody say, you know, I feel closer to God when I'm in. What that really reveals is how bad our theology is. Because what we're saying is, I have to be some remote location where I'm away from the routine of life. We should be just the opposite. I am related to the God of the universe, to the personal work of Jesus Christ on an everyday basis, not just when I'm on vacation. It's just an interesting thought to you scratch your head about on this Easter morning. You don't have to look inside yourself to find God. You will find an empty and deceptive and man-made philosophy. You look to the personal work of Christ to see who God is like. Paul states, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. That's what he would summarily say. What difference does this make? That's a good question. Why do we care about the, the Jesus is the supreme Godhead? He is superior to all. He's superior to all philosophies. Why do we care that Christ is the fullness of God and this is why, in the third part of this section, Christ is the only one who can provide forgiveness. He's the only one who can forgive you. You must understand his superiority over worldly nonsense. You must understand he's the God-man. If you don't understand he's overall, he's the God-man, you will miss that he is the only one who can forgive sins. Verse 10 of Colossians chapter 2, And in him you have been made complete. 
He is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to a cross. Now, there are five phrases I want you to pay attention to. The first two are in him, in him, and the with him, with him, with him. And I'll, I'll show them to you, and I'll show you them all together at once. But that's what I want you to keep your thinking caps on. He is superior over all. He is fully God. He's the only one who can forgive sins. That's Paul's argument. And let's see why and how he explains that. First of all, in him you are made complete, in verse 10. In him you are made complete. You cannot find fulfillment anywhere else. You will never find anything to fill your longings, your heartbreaks, your injustices in life. I've said this many, many times. Forgive me for repetition if you've heard it. Maybe if I say it enough, you'll remember it. Sin will never satisfy. Sin cannot satiate our desires. If sin satisfied, we would look at pornography one time and be satisfied. We would have an affair one time and be satisfied. We would be, have avarice and greed and gorge ourselves on fried chicken, french fries, cholesterol-causing, heart-attack-causing foods, sugar, white stuff galore, all the bad white thing you're not supposed to eat. We would gorge ourselves and be done with it. How many of you have had a meal, heavy meal, you don't eat that way, and what do you say at night? I'm never going to eat again. And I bet before noon the next day, you're opening the refrigerator like I am, looking for something to eat. Sin is insatiable. Hello, McFly. How long does it take to learn this? The only one who can satisfy is Jesus Christ. It's such a strange, you know, opposite. Back to Miss Christie. It's such a strange opposite. You will not, cannot find satisfaction or fulfillment living in sin. You can only find fulfillment in Christ. Well, Christ isn't tangible. He's not substantial. He's not a chicken fried steak. He's not something I can consume and feel better about. That's right. It's a relationship, not a religion. Do's and don'ts will never satisfy, but the person in him you've been made complete. Secondly, in him you were circumcised. Strange word to talk about on Easter Sunday. But what he's saying is the work of the law in the hands of the flesh don't accomplish anything. It's illustrative of a covenant they would understand. But the work of the law is compared and contrasted to the work of Christ. You can't cut yourself metaphorically or physically and make yourself a better Christian. The only way you're going to grow in Christ is to have the work of Christ. Third, we're buried with him and we're raised with him. I love this, 
this counter position. You're buried with him in baptism and you're raised with him through faith. By the way, I don't believe this is a wet baptism. He's talking about spiritually. When Christ died, we died with him. I don't understand that. When we're raised, we're raised with him. I like that. That through the vicarious work of Jesus Christ in your place, on your behalf, instead of you and me, when he died on this cross we call Calvary, in your place, on your behalf instead of you. When he did that, you and I, our sins died there. And when we're raised to new life, it's because of his resurrection. Um, you can't be delivered out of this body of flesh by doing the right things. The flesh has to be killed. The sin nature has to die. Some of you in the medical profession know all too well the very hard, long process of having to go through a bone marrow transplant. Um, Cindy and I have known a number of people from our D.C. days who went through bone marrow transplants. And the donor, number one, it's, unless they have changed things radically, it is the most brutal donation on the planet. They don't put you completely out, and they drill a hole in your hip, and they use this, I won't even describe it, but they take the bone marrow out of your hip, out of your hip bone, and it is excruciating. They use a hammer, and they pound away at it, and you're wailing, and you're screaming. Another cheery Michael Easy sermon. <clears throat> and, and, and they take it out, and they need more, and they need more, and they need more. Well, the recipient, the sick person, what's happened to him or her, they've almost killed him or her with radiation and chemotherapy. In the attempt to kill all the cancer, they almost kill the person. And the, the, the science of bone marrow transplant is we're going to take healthy bone marrow out of another person as a donor, do some amazing scientific processing, turn it into a serum, and we're going to put that into a sick patient who's been through all the chemo, all the radiation, who looks like a, you know, an emaciated, gray, sallow, sick person, probably lost his or her hair, and then we're going to hope and pray that that new bone marrow serum takes over the formerly dying patient system and starts to produce healthy blood. That's a long story, very oversimplified process. The donor hopefully lives through the experience. The recipient may or may not. What a picture. Christ had to die to be the donor. Not just go through excruciation on the cross. By the way, the word excruciation, Latin derivatives to the crucifixion. Excruciate, crucifixion. The most horrible pain, humanly speaking, is paled by the spiritual separation of Jesus Christ and his Father. But we look upon the horrific passion of Christ a la Mel Gibson, and we see this horrific brutalization of a human being. Sure, that's horrible. That was temporary. Separation from God the Father was a whole different discussion. And that's a separation and a pain we don't understand. The only way we're delivered from this body of flesh is to be removed from it. To be removed from it, he had to do it because you and I can. That's the marvel. Finally, verse 13, you're made alive with him. Oh, one more, with him. You were dead in your sins, but now the order has changed it's opposite. Now we're with him. So let's look at these five in one picture. Maybe gives you a little easier way of looking at it. Verse 10, in him you're made complete. 
Verse 11, in him you're circumcised. Verse 12, in you're buried with him. There are the three withs. And then you're raised up with him, and then you're made alive with him. So those are the, the, the five summary, if you will. All right, so this is, our, this is our story. He is superior overall. He is the fully God-man. The, the results of this, he can forgive your sins and mine. What's it look like? Verses 13 and 14 again. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He's forgiven us all our transgressions. We were dead in our sins. We were rebellious in our nature toward him. There are no better people. Jason said it marvelously well in the beginning. There are no better people. We're all bad people. You're on a freight train going to hell with no handbrake. You're not better than me. I'm not better than you. I'll give you an insight you won't like. Mother Teresa wasn't better than you. Sure, people are altruistic. Sure, people do good things. No doubt about it. Doesn't make them better. In God's eyes, God's eyes we're sinners all. So he's forgiven our, all our transgressions. We were dead in those sins. You can't make yourself alive. He canceled out the certificate of debt, wiped it clean, and nailed it to a cross. It's an incredible progression. God forgives sin He's canceled out the note of indebtedness by taking it and fixing it to the cross of Christ. When I was in uh, high school, between high school and college, I took a year off from school and I bought a truck when I was 16 or 17. And I still remember it. It was a four-wheel drive truck, $4,795 for a brand new Chevy four-wheel drive truck. Times were different. Minimum wage was two seventy-five in that day, if memory serves. Uh, it's a little different time frame, and so I borrowed nineteen hundred dollars from my father. Think about the, how ludicrous that was—a forty-seven hundred-dollar truck—and I had to borrow half of it from my dad. I had put a hundred-dollar deposit down, which I was very proud of. My dad has to sign the loan, and I had to pay my dad one hundred seven forty-seven for three years. Excuse me, I had to pay GM. 107.47. Then I had to pay my dad back after that. So here I am, a high school student, going to college a little later on. I'm working two jobs. I couldn't get a student loan, praise God in hindsight. I couldn't get a Pell Grant, praise God in hindsight. So I worked a couple part-time, almost full-time jobs all the way through undergrad, all the way through seminary. Uh, Cindy and I both worked when I was in grad school. We paid our way, so to speak. And uh, that 107.47 was hanging over my head. And on a more than one occasion, first of all, to ask my dad for $1,900 was like to walk down the shadow of the valley of death. You did not ask my parents for money, period, end of story. And I was the youngest, so of course the youngest always gets away with murder. So I asked Dad for $1,900, and he gave it to me, long story short. And so after uh, college, uh, I paid the 107.37 off in 36 months, and I'm starting to pay him 100 bucks a month. Well, this is going to take an eternity. In the meantime, I'm falling in love, sending our dating, we're getting married. I'm finishing college, we're getting, uh, getting married. I graduated mid-year in August. All my family came to Nacogdoches, Texas to see the, the, the boy wonder graduate. No one thought I would go to college. 
No one thought I would ever get through college. No one thought I would graduate college. So it was a big deal. So my family came to see the boy wonder walk across the stage. And so we were there, and we had this little studio apartment Cindy and I lived in our first year of marriage. It was a wonderful place. And my mom and dad and sister and brother, and I think my brother-in-law were there. And uh, it was a sweet, sweet time. And, of course, what you would do is you overeat. You know, that's what you do. And then you give cards. And my dad held out last, and he gave me one of these big cards. And he was, it was his dad. He would always type a note and put it in the card because there wasn't enough room for what he wanted to write. And you couldn't read his writing. So I was grateful that he typed it, and he put it in there. And it was this very just mushy, I mean, crying. You know, there's crying in graduation. I'm crying reading this thing quietly to myself in our little apartment there with all these people looking at me. And uh, he, he accounted all these things in my life that basically he said, I, you, you didn't think you could did this, do this, but you did it. You didn't want to do this, but you did it. You didn't want to do this, but you did it. On and on he went. Very uncharacteristic for my father. And then he said, based on your work ethic and your accomplishments, consider your debts paid in full. Now, 16 or 1700 bucks by today's standard is Nothing. That's an expensive meal for a family in these, in these parts, right? It was nothing. It was a lot. Not the money. The gesture. That we were debt free out of college. How much more your sin? How much more my sin? I can't pay off the first installment of my sin, nor can you. I could work the rest of my life three overtime jobs. I couldn't begin to pay off one part of the debt of my sin. And Paul says he has forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees which was hostile to us, and it was nailed to a cross. Look at the progression. He's canceled it out. He's taken it upon himself. That's how he's paying for it, by nailing it to a cross. When Joe Easley forgave my debt, he ate the 1900 whatever it was, dollars I owed him. There, just, there was no government program to help out my dad to get him off the $1,900 he owed me. He had to swallow that. When you pay off your children's debts, when they get in trouble, or maybe you help them with this or that, and they can't pay you back, you swallow the debt. Someone magically doesn't come in and take care of it for you. Uh, someone spiritually came in and took care of your eternal debt. We, we, we have grown stale with understanding who this Jesus is. We have gotten too comfortable in our eternal security, too smug in our once saved, always saved mindset. And we do not understand the price that was paid. It's not guilt and shame. It's not guilt and regret and remorse. It is a recalibration that he is overall. That he has eternally existed. He is fully God. And that he died in your place, on your behalf instead of you. In my place, on my behalf instead of me. You weren't any better than the next person at Calvary. You and I were just as indebted, just as destined to hell, apart from his interaction. And we live so cavalierly 
with this salvation package. After seven years in India, William Carey, who is a legendary missionary and translator, had gone to India. Seven years and just hard, hard dirt, caste systems, impoverished. He had his first person that came to Christ named Krishna, think about that, Krishna Chandra Pal, P-A-L, Paul, Krishna Chandra Pal. Uh, it was no small accomplishment or ramification when Pal came to Christ because in that caste system it was very difficult to be a Christian, as it is today in many parts of the world. Well, he grew dramatically, so much so that they took him on the mission trail with him, so to speak, and he was speaking. He was in Calcutta spe speaking 12 times a week. He ends up writing hymns, Christian hymns in Bengali that are still sung today. Of indebtedness, Christian Chandra Pal knew something, and I'm curious if he knew this passage because he wrote this little excerpt. It may have been in a hymn or it may have just been part of his poetry, but he wrote, Jesus, for you a body takes, your guilt assumes, your fetter breaks, discharging all your dreadful debt, and can you then such love forget? Easter is a celebrated time. It's a wonderful time. We're going to dress up in pink and pastel and have eggs and grandchildren and parties and eat like there's no tomorrow. And maybe you planted yesterday and you're sore, your back is sore and you mulched and weeded and did this or that or the other. Do not miss what he has done for you. Implore you. Don't miss it. I think there are two kinds of personalities, those who can truly get excited and cheer and, and yell and be happy, and those like me who, when they're happy, they cry. I've always marveled at people that get excited at church. I just sit in the back and cry. And they're tears of gratitude. They're tears of joy. They're not morose tears. I don't get it. I've stopped trying to figure it out. I watch people that raise their hands and smile when they sing, and I go, good for you. <laughs> I can't do either, because I cry if I do that. I just sob like a schoolboy and remove my makeup before I get up to preach. <laughs> Can you for then such love forget? The West has become an insular place to be a Christian and it cost us nothing. I think that's all going to change. Another cheery <laughs> Michael Aisley thought. And the test of your Christianity and your faithfulness and do you say this is the Bible and believe it? Do you say this is Christ and own it? Do you say what you mean and mean what you say? Those days are in front of you and me. Even in insulated middle Tennessee, some of you around the country and the world watching this have a different context, but I don't want to make you live in fear or scare you or make you worried. I want to get your attention. Recalibration, a clarity, a courage, a commitment to smile at the future. What worldly or man-made philosophy 
can take away your guilt and shame. What worldly or man-made ideology can remove your guilt? What worldly author? I've been reading a lot of Jordan Peterson lately, which a lot of you have and probably will. I don't know where he is on his journey. It's a fascinating story to watch. He's got so much of it right. And a lot of people are reading it going, hmm, hmm, hmm. As Paul would say to Agrippa, you're not far from the kingdom. Um, worldly philosophies will always be with us. It may knock on the U.S.'s door in the next 8, 10, 20 years where it's going to be a different thing to say, I believe in the Bible, I believe in Jesus Christ. I read yesterday morning a church in uh, another part of Europe that was shut down. Police came in and shut the church down because they were meeting. Even though they had masks on, can't make it up. No, actually you can if you read history. Church has been persecuted forever. There's no worldly or man-made philosophy that will take care of your guilt. There's no worldly or man-made philosophy that will solve your anxiety. There's no worldly or man-made philosophy or counselor in the world that will assuage your anxiety and help you live a happy life. There's only one person that can solve your sin condition. He's superior overall. He's the full God-man, and that's what he did Good Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, is he died in your place, in my place, on our behalf, instead of us, to do for you what you can never do for yourself. How are you going to live? How shall we then live? Christ forgives our sin. Christ removes our guilt. Christ paid your debt. He paid my debt. He took our sins and removes it from us. And that's cause for celebration. And that celebration, I think, involves talking about this to people that don't know. He is risen. I hope you believe that.